In 2015, director Taika Waititi and star Sam Neill gave the world a quirky adventure comedy that tugs on the heartstrings. In 2022, we try our first of four whiskeys from the Ardbeg Distillery. The film is Hunt for the Wilder People. The whiskey is Ardbeg Wee Beastie. Oh, it's just a wee beastie. <laughs> there it is. And we'll review them both. This is the Film and Whiskey Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we are looking at the 2016 Taika Waititi comedy, Hunt for the Wilder People. Bob, this movie, for whatever reason, I remember seeing the title and it just kind of always stuck in my head as like an animated film about those, the kids books about the weird monsters. Mm. You know what I'm talking about? No. <laughs> Come on, dude. Wait, you're talking about what kids books? It's like a kids book where the where the wild things are. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. That's I just assumed this movie was like a spin-off of that. It's a Maurice Sendak adaptation. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> sure, whoever that is. He was the guy that wrote uh Where the Wild Things Are. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, see, learning new things every day. <laughs> there you go. Learning the author of one of the most famous books ever written. <laughs> there it is. Oh man, how are you doing today? Man, I'm doing good. My uh my toddler is officially throwing toddler fits. There now. it is. I I tried and this is this is like terrible <laughs> parenting right here. I tried to put pants on her. Mhm. And she cried for 45 minutes. Yeah. Obviously. Cuz you're the worst. Why would you do well, that? Like how dare I? <laughs> You know, the funny thing is the way you said that sentence, you you like you said the words I tried and then stopped to give like a, a parenthetical. And I thought that was the whole sentence. You were just like, I, I tried. Yeah, man. But but it's it's over now. <laughs> I've lost. Yep. Yep. No, we got him on her. Oh, she uh, was not not pumped about it. Well, hey, not to awkwardly segue out of life circumstances, but we're talking about a movie today that has a lot to do with the ups and downs of parenting. Oh, there, there it is. There it is, man. I'm really excited that you watched this movie, Brad. I tried not to even mention it throughout the season because I knew that you were a huge fan of Taika Waititi's uh, Jojo Rabbit. And so I, I kind of thought like, oh, this is in a very similar vein. Obviously, the same person made it. But, you know, it, it has that sort of heartwarming, uh, but also very funny coming of age story wrapped up in it. And this was him, uh, you know, on a much smaller scale before he had gotten magnified with the Thor movie that he made and obviously before Jojo Rabbit. So we're kind of like throwing it back to the earlier days of Taika Waititi here. Brad, I just I want to hear your first impressions. I know you had never seen this movie before, and obviously you had no idea what it was about. So like at the end of last week's episode, you kind of figured out that it was Taika Waititi. But other than that, like you went into this pretty cold. Yeah, th this is one of the the newest movies to me. Like like I said, I literally thought it was a about a children's book. So I really didn't know where we were going with this film. Uh I will say that like the wild thing about this film is that it will it will take you on a journey and it'll open up a door for you 
And behind that door is another door, Bob. I'm just going to play that clip right here so people don't get too confused. And you know that if you're ever in that situation, there are always two doors to choose from. And through the first door, oh, it's easy to get through that door. And on the other side, waiting for you are all the nummiest treats you can imagine. Fanta, Doritos, LMP, Burger Rings, Coke Zero. But you know what? There's also another door. Not the Burger Ring door. Not the Fanta door. Another door that's harder to get through. Guess what's on the other side? Anyone want to take a guess? Vegetables? No. Not vegetables. No. Jesus? You would think Jesus. I thought Jesus the first time I, I, I come across that door. It's not Jesus. It's another door. And guess what's on the other side of that door? Jesus. Jesus. Yeah, Jesus. It's tricky like that, Jesus. <laughs> this is one of the most quirky comedies that I think it highlights everything that's like perfect about Taika Waititi. And I I will say that his his style of comedy is not always my favorite. And I, I don't think it will ever be like the pinnacle of comedy for me, but I appreciate it for what it is. And I think that for people out there who loved Thor Ragnarok, you know, Bob and I obviously are huge Marvel fans on this podcast. And so if you are also like us, big, big <laughs> Marvel fans, and you've seen Thor Ragnarok, then you need to watch this movie because I think you're really going to love it. Mm hmm. And, well, so I'll say this about Taika Waititi, and it's something that I think is very obvious, and yet we don't talk about a lot. And it's that he always uses his comedy in service of a specific theme. And for him, that theme seems to be like outcasts finding a makeshift family, right? And and I think that allowing him to bring that into the MCU with the Thor movies was probably one of the smartest things that Disney ever did. And you know, the, the Thor series was in desperate need of like something to rejuvenate it. And so going like the silly comedy route, it, it was a good call, but it wasn't just that they went the silly comedy route. They didn't just lighten it up and make it frivolous. By the end of Thor Ragnarok, the place that we leave those characters in is that they have like banded together in a very similar way of like everything I talked about with Guardians 2, right? They they leave that movie where Thor really feels like he has finally found a family and a calling and a purpose. And then Infinity War comes in and kind of destroys that whole thing, just like it did with the, you know, the timeline of Guardians 2. But I love that in a similar way to Guardians 2, Taika Waititi brought that sort of familial thematic thing to that storyline. He does it again in Jojo Rabbit, but I think you really see the seeds of it being sown here. Yeah, if there is a director out there who understands family better than Taika Waititi, I I would be hard pressed to name them. Like he, I think he it's I think it's uh is it Justin Lin, the guy that does all the Fast and Furious movies? Cause, oh, because <laughs> they ha they definitely hold the record for number of times a character says the word family on that, screen. <laughs> that is true. Can I can I just awkwardly tell the funniest story in the world about the Fast and the Furious? Oh, please. So my one of my best friends, Stephen and Anderson and I, he has been wanting me to watch The Fast and the Furious for so, so long. And so finally one night, like 
his kid and his wife were out of town, so he wasn't doing anything. And I was like, dude, come over. We'll put Sadie to bed and we'll watch The Fast and the Furious. This was the first so one? Like, yes, the oh, first one. Great, so we're, great so we're super yeah, we're super pumped. I'm like jazzed. And he <laughs> like he's watched the entire series through twice. Like he, he loves this series. So we sit down and we start watching the movie. And about 20 or 30 minutes in, he goes, huh, I forgot she was in this. And then like uh, 10 or 15 minutes later, he goes, man, that's weird. Like, this doesn't feel right. And we like back out and go to the menu. Now we're watching this on on the Plex, which is a very legal way to watch movies. <laughs> and it said it was the Fast and the Furious 2001, you know, Paul Walker, you know, everybody. It's it's all legit. So we keep watching. We get like 50 minutes in and Gal Gadot is on screen. <laughs> and I'm like looking up Gal Gadot in The Fast and the Furious, and I'm like, Steven, she is not in The Fast and the Furious. And we finally realized that what happened was, is we requested The Fast and the Furious, but it pulled Fast and Fast Furious. Fast and Furious, which is like, what, number six or seven? <laughs> yeah. So, so we're sitting there, the crazy, and I'm like, man, this is so advanced for 2001. They have like GPS screens on, on their on their cars. It's like amazing. <laughs> but like Steven has watched these movies twice through and didn't even realize that we weren't watching the right movie. Did you ever go back we... and watch the first one? No. Here's, here's the great thing about it. You're talking about like how technologically advanced it is. The plot of the first movie is that there is a big heist that involves stealing DVD players. <laughs> so so like the gulf between those two movies could not be wider. Yeah. Yeah. So that that was my experience watching the oh, Fast and the Furious great. franchise. And Steven's like, bro, they just ruined like everything. Like the 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 main girlfriend dies and and all this stuff happens and, it, and you just got everything ruined for you. <laughs> and you're like, I promise I did not. Yes. <laughs> oh man. All right. Well, let's uh, let's get back to Hunt for the Wilder People here. And since you did such a good job at explaining the Fast and Furious franchise, we might as well just lean into it and do Brad explains on this movie. This is the part of the podcast where Brad breaks down the plot of the film that he has just seen often for the first time, and it is the first time for this film. Brad, you have 60 seconds on the clock. Can you explain the plot of Hunt for the Wilder People? A cantankerous old man and a complaining overweight child get lost in the wilderness after the man's wife dies. They travel with their dogs. They find this rare bird that nobody really thinks is real uh, because it's extinct. Uh, they lay their wife's um, uh, spirit to rest up in the up in, near this lake, and uh, they meet a man who lived out in the wilderness, and it cost them his sanity. They get hunted by people who want the man dead. Uh, eventually, they get home, and the cantankerous old man has softened quite a bit and become a part of the boy's life. Bob, do you want to know what I just did there? Did you read I some sort of IMDb description? <laughs> Pass no. it off as your own. I described the movie up. Wow. Ah, oh, my there? oh, my gosh. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. I never put two and two together. This is up, isn't it? <laughs> it's literally a live action version of up. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Tell me I'm wrong on any point there. Brad, this might be the most salient point you've made in three years on this podcast. <laughs> this is 
I was literally like halfway through this movie and it's when they saw the bird and he's like, oh, I think it's extinct. And I was like, oh, this is <laughs> this just is up. up. Yeah. <laughs> there, it's a grumpy old man, a child he didn't want that's overweight. And they're like out with their dogs in the wilderness. <laughs> wow. <laughs> All right. So, folks, if you've seen Up, then you can at least hang with us through the rest of this episode. Because it's, Bro, it's like, a pretty direct correlation. Like when when Heck's wife dies, all they needed to do was start playing. Da-da-da-dum. Oh my gosh, <laughs> mm. Brad, we are like way off the rails today. We've talked about Fast and Furious. We've talked about Up. Man, <laughs> we talked about Thor Ragnarok, Jojo Rabbit. <laughs> it's really been all over the place. All right, so we're going to talk about Hunt for the Wilder People, and as we get into talking about this film, I do want to give a quick plug for our Patreon. If this is your first time listening, or if you've been a long time listener, why not take the next step in supporting our podcast? Go to Patreon.com/slash/FilmWhiskey. You can support the show at three different tiers. Each of them includes bonus perks, uh, which include. Complete special episodes that we do just for the patrons. Brad and I are just getting ready to record uh, a bonus episode where we give our Oscars picks. This episode's obviously coming out after the Oscars, but you can hear how right or wrong we were if you subscribe at patreon.com slash film whiskey. All right, Brad, let's get into talking about this movie. Man, the up comparison is just ringing in my brain. I can't get over it now. (laughs) (laughs) I'll, I'll get you back on track, Bob. This is the most New Zealand movie to ever be made in New Zealand since Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Yeah. And I have to say that the name Ricky Baker is the most perfect name to be repeated in, in a the New, New Zealand, Zealand accent. <laughs> over Ricky Baker. <laughs> Just over and over and over. And it's absolutely phenomenal, uh, man. And the best part is like that there's that moment where the like adoptive mom is singing the birthday song. And it's just Ricky Baker, Ricky Baker, over and over and over. (laughs) It's so good. (laughs) All right. So just to add a little bit of context to your Brad Explains, which which very neatly applied to both Up and this movie. (laughs) The premise of this movie is that this kid, uh, I almost forgot his name. It's Ricky Baker. (laughs) The premise of this movie is that Ricky Baker has been through the foster care system and is considered somewhat of a delinquent. And he gets sent out into, you know, what they call the bush, right? Like it is just the middle of nowhere in New Zealand with these people who are one step removed from being survivalists, essentially. Right. And uh, the husband, heck, is very uh, what's the word, Brad? I don't know. Closed off. <laughs> Let us yeah, say. Yeah, he's he's a little bit illiterate. He's a grump. Uh, he yeah, that's a good way of putting it. You know, he's a uh, he. If he lived on Sesame Street, he'd live in a trash can. You know, he's, he's he, a little, he might a little grouchy. But uh, the yeah. mo- but the mom, the adoptive mom, is really welcoming, and you get this great kind of introduction to the film, where by like the twenty minute mark, this kid Ricky is finally starting to open up a little bit, and and you see that he's in that. That kind of perfect age for a coming of age film where like I think he's 12 or 13. He mm-hmm. he's just attached enough to like little kid objects, but he doesn't want to give off the vibe that he's a little kid. So he's trying to be tough and it's so endearing and it is so winning. And I don't think this movie works, Brad, without that first kind of introduction where as an audience member, you think, oh, maybe everything's going to be OK before that kind of complicating incident comes into play. Yeah, I, I think that uh, Julian Dennison, the the kid that they got to play Ricky Baker, he 
he really embodies a middle schooler so perfectly, Bob. Like you and I have both worked in youth ministry, you know, so somewhat extensively throughout our lives. And middle school is like this perfect age of children who desperately want to be cool and yet are still children. Like they still have the things that they love. They still have the the quirky oddities that you have when you're like seven, eight, nine years old. And they're just a lot of fun to be around. And, and I think that Denison does a phenomenal job of embodying that. And and it really comes down to like what he says in the movie, the, the Skux life didn't i didn't choose the skux life the skux <laughs> life chose me <laughs> yeah man I, one of the best child performances i think i've ever seen brad because yeah. he really i mean he really embodies that character there is not a minute where he's on screen that i'm thinking like oh this kid actor is doing a pretty good job right and i i'm sure that yeah. taika waititi leaned into that a little bit that this was to some extent you know incorporating the personality of the kid but man, like it really rests on his shoulders. And you also have to believe that this kid is repressing a lot of grief, right? Through through many stages because Heck's wife dies. And this was like this kid's adoptive mom. And mm -hmm. it's her death that sets everything off. Ricky knows that they're going to come kind of collect him. And Heck is too grief ridden to really care. And so Ricky's like, I'm going to run off into the wilderness. And you watch him. Uh, you know, in his little kid way, think I have to fake my death. So he puts like a, a fake pillow version of himself <laughs> in the barn, burns down the barn on accident, runs off into the wilderness. And I mean, you you have to buy every decision he's making. And it has to come across as like not telegraphed, but also telegraphed enough that you buy that like a preteen would be thinking these things through. And it's this combination of really great character writing and also just a fantastic performance. Yeah, I mean, I was watching this with my wife and she when he set the the dummy on fire goes, "Oh yeah, that's exactly what a 12-year-old boy would yeah, do." Yeah. 100%. Like like 100%. He'd be like, "Oh yeah, I'm just going to set this body on fire and it'll be fine." <laughs> and leave a note that says like, "Sorry, I set myself on fire" or whatever. <laughs> Yeah, like that totally makes sense to me. And you're right. The the writers of this film give him such a believable character to play. And then his performance just knocks it out of the park. I will say, I'm curious, Bob, at what point do you differentiate between a teenage performance and a child performance? Because like when I think of the best child performances, I think of like Sixth Sense. When like Haley Joel Osment was legitimately like eight years old. Right. So, I, like, at what point do you start to differentiate and be like, nah, like, th like he's not an adult, an actor, but he's also not a child actor. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, maybe it's when you start to see, like, the physical signs of puberty creeping into the performance. <laughs> like, I didn't, I didn't notice any voice cracks. And he so, probably was the same age as, like, Haley Joel Osment when he was doing Secondhand Lions. But, I, <laughs> but like, I think of Haley Joel Osment very much as a teen performance and this one as a yeah. child performance. And I, I have no rationale for that <laughs> other than I didn't see an Adam's apple or hear a bunch of voice cracks. Yeah, no, I, I literally was going to say, like, are, are we talking Secondhand Lions Haley Joel Osment <laughs> or Sixth Sense Haley Joel Osment? Oh, man. All right. So let's talk about the other half of this equation, because in a lot of ways, this movie really is what they call a two-hander, which is, you know, a movie that is shared by only two people. And the other half of that equation is Sam Neill. And Brad, we, we kind of texted back and forth after you'd seen the movie, and I was talking about 
how great I thought Sam Neill was in this movie. And you basically said, like, I have never seen him in anything except for Jurassic Park and this. And I think that's pretty true for a lot of Americans. Like he has had a long and successful movie career, but he never hit the heights of superstardom that you thought that he might after Jurassic Park. He made a ton of like weird off the wall, especially like horror movies in the 1980s before Spielberg cast him in uh, Jurassic Park. But watching this movie, which is a horror movie, which is a horror movie. (laughs) Watching him in this movie, Brad, I I was immediately reminded that I think he was competing against Mel Gibson for all of the Mel Gibson roles in the 90s and early 2000s. And like, to be quite frank, you know. We all know what happened with Mel Gibson, but if that stuff hadn't happened with Mel Gibson, it might have been Mel Gibson <laughs> in this movie is what I'm saying. Like, it, it's possible the only reason he gets this movie is because there's no longer a Mel Gibson to fill the Mel Gibson roles. And it's it's an unfortunate fact, I think, but it is a fact. I am really happy, though, that we got this Sam Neill performance because he is just spectacular in this movie. <laughs> Instead of like Braveheart Mel Gibson in this movie, I really want What Women Want Mel Gibson. No, in this I don't movie. want that ever. <laughs> oh my gosh, dude. <laughs> Never ever. That movie is so terrible. Dude, talk about a movie that immediately stopped holding up. Like they, oh, they released it, it and then a week later we were like, ugh, this doesn't hold up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I yeah, Sam Neill. I, I like to think in this movie that Alan Grant got like hit over the head with a dinosaur bone at some point and like lost his memory and then moved to New Zealand and became heck. Mm. Like that like that is that's the most easy way for me to to deal with this. Uh, Bob, I'm just gonna be honest with you, man. He's perfect in this movie. He's so good. Like his his grumpiness is believable. The rawness of his emotions regarding his wife, it, like as somebody who has worked around death a lot <laughs> and I've been a chaplain for a long time and I, I now work as a hospice chaplain, his grief process is perfect. Mm. Like, I, I don't know if I've ever seen on screen somebody throw themselves into a new challenge who has needed an opportunity to process and work through their loss in a healthy way and they're not doing it. And I've never seen it it done so well where you see someone bond with someone that they would not normally have Mm -hmm. in wake of a devastating loss. Like all the aspects of his character were written incredibly well. And then, you know, just like I said with with Julian Dennison and his performance, Sam Neill's performance takes what was written on the script and just elevates it to another level. Yeah. Do you know what it reminds me of, Brad? We did a movie, I think last season, maybe the season before, called Warrior, where we it was the MMA movie. And I love that movie a lot. And we talked a lot about Nick Nolte's performance in that movie. And there's yeah. there's one key scene in that movie where you know, he is he's clean and sober and then he falls off the wagon and he gets just absolutely faced and he's such a mean drunk and he's such a broken man. And that scene he has with Tom Hardy is like it's so heartbreaking because it is if you've ever been around a person who gets like that when they're drunk, like that's the most realistic depiction of that I've ever seen. And like, I don't know if Nolte just got hammered. And like they just filmed him doing that. But like it's one of those things where you're like, I I can't even tell if this person's acting anymore because it just feels like it's coming from their bones. You know what I mean? 
Nick Nolte has definitely uh, gone gone on a few benders in his life. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think what I'm saying is Sam Neill in this movie going through that grief process of a guy with a very limited emotional range who very clearly is calling out for somebody to comfort him. And yet his actions are simultaneously pushing them away. It is so lived in and it feels so real that it almost doesn't feel like he's acting at points. Yeah, a hundred percent. I think that the way and the way you see that come out really is in his interactions with Ricky Baker, even in the moments where Ricky is telling him, like, you have to process this trauma that like that's what I've been taught. You can you can almost feel this tension between like the sterile environment of education and like this is the right thing to do in the face of trauma. Mm-hmm. And it it just blasts off this this icy exterior that Heck is putting forward. Well, and he he helps him eventually process it. But I, I love that kind of dichotomy of this is what you're supposed to do. But let's be real. How often do any of us really do what we're supposed to do when we're in such a deep emotional mm. state? Well, and then there's also the scenes that counterbalance that where Ricky says something and instead of it glancing off heck, it really hits and it hits deeply in a way that as an audience member who is an adult, right? Like you're looking at heck and you realizing heck is starting to figure out just how bad Ricky actually had it. And maybe Ricky doesn't even understand it because he's just a kid and kids are so optimistic and kids, they just, they see things happen around them that they can't contextualize. And there's this great scene where they're kind of sitting around a campfire And Ricky starts talking about the foster care system and how he had this friend. And I can't remember what the girl's name was, but essentially she was abused to the point where she was like beaten to death. Right. And and Ricky doesn't really know what he's saying, but he's just talking about how, you know, she got hit and she got beat. And then we tried to tell somebody and they just sent her back to her house and then she was just dead. And like to hear a kid say that so matter of factly, you see it register with heck. And then you also see him kind of in the moment decide to change the topic because I think he recognizes Ricky still has this kind of sense of innocence about him that despite how awful his life must have been in foster care, like it hasn't quite gotten contextualized for him yet. And it's in those moments that I think Sam Neill's performance really shines because heck goes from being this really gruff, you know, uh, caricature of a person to someone who is kind of willing to buy into that, like, I'm going to kind of lie to this kid a little bit for his own protection. And that's where you start yeah. to see these, like, these moments of light creep through that tough exterior. Yeah. And another moment that I think illustrates your point perfectly, Bob, is how a little bit after his wife dies, Ricky talks about like, oh, well, she's she's from, you know, the bush and and her spirit's going to go up by the lake and 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 transcend and and he and you know heck just rips him to pieces he goes she's not from the bush she's you know from the city there there's nothing about that that's going to happen she's dead and buried and there's nothing else to life and it just totally deflates ricky and yet you know almost an hour later in the movie they are up in a lake on you know geo, you know in altitude wise very high up in the bush and he pulls her remains out her her ashes and Heck looks at him and is like, thanks for bringing her boy. Like I'm, uh, he's just presents this 
genuine thankfulness Mm. that's just so meaningful because by that time of the journey, you're right. He's willing to say, you know what? Maybe there's more to life than just being dead and gone. Maybe there is something to believing in something bigger than myself. Man, isn't it funny how this season, Brad, like we have randomly picked so many movies and yet I always want to draw connections to movies from this season. And like, I don't know if I realized how deeply I had emotional attachments to some of these movies, but like I'm watching Sam Neill in this movie and I'm thinking of Mel Gibson in Signs, right? And then I'm Mm. watching Sam Neill scatter someone's ashes and I'm like, this is the second ash scattering movie we've had in like a month (laughs) with Elizabeth Town. Like it's just, it's so weird how these things kind of keep cropping up. Well, even with what I was just saying, like this movie really is about them coming to believe in family in a way that they never had before. Like that the idea of family is bigger than what they had ever expected it to be. And what does that remind me of? Secondhand lions. Mm, There it is. Like, like there's, there's more to this life than, than what we think there is. I, there's just, there's a lot going on here, man. Well, loving it. I do want to say before we go to break that this is a comedy and I feel like we have really talked about like the heavier elements of it. But part of what makes this movie so good is how well Taika Waititi balances those two poles. And when we come back from break, we are going to talk a little bit about Waititi as a director, as a writer, and also the comedy elements of this movie. But before we get there, Brad, let's try this Ardbeg Wee Beastie. What do you say? Let's get to it. Film and Whiskey Nation, are you getting bored with your cocktail game? A little tired of the same old whiskey sour? Then you need to be checking out our friends at Route 23. Route 23 is a women-owned business that specializes in all-natural simple syrups that will absolutely transform your mixed drink experience. Their roster of flavors is absolutely impeccable. We're talking blueberry mint, cherry almond, cucumber habanero, grapefruit basil, maple cinnamon, pear rosemary, vanilla ginger, and their two newest additions, cranberry apple spice and yuzu citru. If that list of names doesn't get your brain percolating on some new recipe ideas for mixed drinks, then I, I don't know what will. Route 23 is incredibly versatile and so easy to integrate into your home bar. And right now is the best time to do that because they are offering our listeners a 10% discount. Use the code WHISKEY10 at checkout to get 10% off your order. You can find them online at route23.com. That's R-O-O-T, the number 23.com. All right, so today we are trying our first of four whiskeys from the Ardbeg Distillery. We're basically doing what we did a couple months ago with Glen Morangie, and Ardbeg is a sister distillery to Glen Morangie. Ardbeg is located in the Isla region of Scotland, and if you know anything about Isla scotches, they are famous mostly for having peat in them. And we have a long and checkered history with peated scotch, Brad. Who's Pete? <laughs> Peter. Bob, I am so pumped to get into Ardbeg for the next four weeks. And do you want to know why? Why is that, Brad? Because I love peated scotch. Ardbeg like, 10, which we're going to try, I think, next week, was the first peated scotch I ever had that I liked. We had mm-hmm. tried the Laphroaig, and I was like, I hate everyone involved in making me drink this. And then <laughs> I remember like months and months later, I was like, you know what? I really, I have a whiskey podcast. I can't just avoid certain types of whiskey. So I tried, the next thing I tried at the bar was Ardbeg 10. And I was like, 
okay, I get it now. And we'll, you know, I'll give tasting notes when we get there, but there is something to Ardbeg that I didn't get on that Laphroaig 10. And I, I find it to be there on all of their whiskeys. So I'm really pumped for this, man. Yeah, I weirdly, like, I really like peated scotches. I, I haven't met one that I, like, genuinely disliked. But there's still not a whiskey that I just, like, reach for on a regular basis. You know, it's, yeah. if I'm just sitting down and having a drink, I don't often just say to myself, you know what I'm going to get? The peatiest expression <laughs> of whiskey I can find. It's like, I want to have, have a cigar and a whiskey, but all I have is whiskey. How can I find yeah. something... <laughs> That can fulfill both <laughs> things for me. You know what I mean? My God, the Isla. <laughs> All right. So we are trying today the Ardbeg Wee Beastie. This was just introduced, I believe, back in 2017 to their lineup. It is the youngest product that Ardbeg produces at only five years of age. It is aged in ex-bourbon and ex-Oloroso sherry casks. So nothing too wild and out of the ordinary there. But Brad, even as I go to nose this, I don't know if I would have pegged this as a five-year scotch. Like, it uh, it has something going on here that would make me think it's been aged for longer. Here's what I love about Ardbeg, Bob. There is just something so beautiful that lies underneath the peat. Mm-hmm. Like, every time I have Ardbeg, the first, like, seven nosings, I'm just like, oh, well, somebody just smoked a cigar and, and like, threw it in my face. But as you work your way through that, it rewards your patience. Mm-hmm. Like there's just so much offered here and you are 100% correct. I would have never in my wildest dreams imagined that this was a five-year scotch. Bob, I I don't even know if I've ever heard of a five-year scotch. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't either, to be honest with you. Brad, as I go to nose this, and it's worth noting, we're both trying this live right now. Usually we, we sip beforehand, we take notes, but uh, we just decided let's do this together right now. I think the the predominant thing that's coming off of this nose for me, Brad, aside from the peat smoke, is actually like some olive brine. Like it, it kind of smells like a fresh cracked jar of green olives. And I am not an olive person, but in this glass, it is smelling like weirdly enticing to me. I don't know how to explain it. This might be the weirdest nosing note I'll ever give, but it, it smells almost like you took an apple and pickled it in olive juice. Hmm. Interesting. Like, yeah. Almost like, like an apple cider vinegar kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. And I, I'm like intrigued by it. it. It's not my favorite thing in the world, but it's interesting. And I think that I'm going to give it a seven and a half out of 10 on the nose. That's exactly where I'm falling. I, I'm a little tentative still. And I think that if there is something I'm noticing about this nose, as opposed to like a Lagavulin 16 or, you know, something more well-aged, I can already tell that the alcohol seems a little bit more, I don't know what the word is, prickly here. You know what I mean? Like it's its kind of jumping out of the glass in a less well-rounded way as opposed to some more well-aged scotches that we've had. So it, it's not quite a five o'clock shadow. It's like a three-day shadow. <laughs> and it's got a little bit of roughness to it. Let's give this a sip and see if that roughness carries over or if it's a little smoother than we expected. All right. I do think this one this one's a little... I don't want to say rough around the edges. It's really nice. It's it's, it's young. I've it's, never tasted I've yeah. never tasted this before on a scotch because most scotch are minimum d- double digits. But yeah, weirdly I'm like, "Oh, this this kind of reminds me of a really young bourbon." 
it's it's very prickly on the tongue too. I think the alcohol uh, jumps right out at you. Like it's a little more aggressive than most scotches I've tried. I actually like the flavor here. That olive thing really kind of carried through for me. Um, and the the peat is a much darker kind of like almost ashy kind of taste. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I've never tasted ash, but. We were just talking with the national brand ambassador for Ardbeg. We're going to have him on in a couple of weeks here. And he kind of walked through how in his mind, there are like five different varieties of smoke. Brad, I don't know if I am well versed enough in the world of peat to put my finger on which of the five varieties this is, but it does taste a little different than what we normally get on peated scotch. Well, Bob, you, you know, you got your five peats. You got Pete Smith. You got <laughs> Pete Oliver. You... <laughs> no, dude, I'm I'm with you. This is... A really fascinating peat, and what I really like about it is that, you know, we, we break our no- our notes up into nose, taste, finish, right? Like, those are the, those are kind of the, the three areas of flavor. And weirdly, this one, the peat almost sits like a barrier between the palate and the finish. Mm. I don't know if you're having that experience, but like, when it first hits my mouth, I get a little bit of like a young apple, like, like all, not a sweet apple, like like a little bit of tartness and a little bit of saltiness. I, I think that olive brine comes through. And then right at the back of my throat, boom, peat, smoke, it's heavy and dark and rolling. And then it almost kind of dissipates. And on the finish, I get some really nice briny salt notes that just linger for a long mm-hmm, time. Mm-hmm. And that like that's a really unique experience for me that that I'm enjoying. I think the taste itself, I'm a little bit cooler on. I'll give it a six and a half. But the finish is it it lingers. It's got power. It's got flavor. And that there's that little bit of smoke that lasts a long time. I'll, I'll give it a seven and a half on the finish. Yeah, I'm almost right there with you. I'm going to give it a six and a half on the taste. I'll give it a seven on the finish. I kind of think, you know, as we get further along here, it's just going to kind of come out to about a seven out of 10 across the board for me. Yeah, this is a this is a well above average whiskey, uh, but it is just a little rough around the edges. And I like the marketing. I like that they call it We Beastie and like all of the the copy on the label is about how it demolishes everything in its path and stuff like that. Um, <laughs> and I think, you know, they're trying to kind of prepare you for the fact that this is a little bit of a more aggressive drinking experience than we're used to getting from Isla Scotch. So, yeah, I'm going to come out to a seven on the finish. When it comes to balance, I think I'll put myself right there again. It uh, it didn't really promise anything that it didn't deliver on. I think, if anything, the nose, even though it hinted at being kind of harsh and aggressive, it may not have prepared me for just how much of a bite this thing was going to have. And I say I say the word harsh. I don't mean harsh as in like it's really astringent. It's hard to drink. It's just um, it makes its presence known for sure. Yeah, you know what I mean. It, it's a it's a wee beastie. <laughs> it certainly is. <laughs> yeah, Bob, I'm with you. I think seven out of ten is the right place for this balance. I will say we're jumping into value now, and you can get Ardbeg Ten, which we're going to review next week for fifty five dollars. Bob, this is going to set you back $48. Hmm. And I I will say if there's one area where in my mind, and maybe this is the wrong way to think about it, but if you're if you're making this whiskey in half the time that you're making your flagship product, I don't expect the price to be half the cost, 
but I expect it to be more than like, uh, I don't know, like a 10 to 12% reduction. Mm -hmm. You know, I feel like the price range for this should be closer to a monkey shoulder, like 35 to $38. Yeah. Than $48. I mean, I will say again, like we, we always reference monkey shoulder, but monkey shoulder is a blended scotch. This is a single malt scotch. Yeah. Um, I I wouldn't expect this to be less than like a 40 to 42, but you're right at, at about a 48, 49 dollar price tag. This is not the best thing in this price range for me, right? Even among Isla Scotch. So I don't want to give it a five and a half, but I think I might give it like a six out of 10 on value. Still a good whiskey. And I think ultimately it is still worth 48 dollars. But I think when you're comparing it to what else you can get for 48 dollars, uh, that value kind of wanes a little bit. Yeah, I, that's where I'm at, Bob. I'll give it a five out of ten on value. Uh, it, it's it's definitely a good whiskey, Bob. My my final score is coming out to a thirty three point five out of fifty, which is honestly a little bit lower than I expected. Yeah, me too. I'm at a thirty four out of fifty, so we're you know we're going to average out to a thirty three point seven five or a sixty seven and a half out of a hundred. I think that's about right for this, Brad. I'm I'm really excited to revisit Ardbeg 10 next week. I think we'll definitely notice the differences in the flavor and, and how much more well-rounded it is, at least as I recall. This was a good one, but I think there's a reason that you see more people gravitating towards the 10 as opposed to the five year. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I This might sound weird, but but hear me out. I don't think I'm going to recommend this whiskey. And the only reason is that I, I know that in general probably 70 to 80% of our our listener base doesn't really drink peated scotches and so i would not recommend this as your starter your introduction into the world of peated scotch and so for that reason i don't think i'm going to recommend this i'm going to say the same like with the caveat like this shouldn't be your first entry into this world right yeah yeah if you already have had peated scotches you love them you're interested in them like yeah go give this a try get a dram at your local bar even buy a bottle but but don't make it your introduction all right brad what do you say we get back into talking about hunt for the wilder people let's get to it all right that was ardbeg we beastie Brad, we're off to a good start with the Ardbegs, but I am definitely looking forward to some of the more well-aged products in that line. We're getting back into talking about Hunt for the Wilder People, and it is time for our newest segment, Two Facts and a Falsehood. Now, Brad, as you get into your Two Facts and a Falsehood to try to stump me, I do have to say we threw this over to people in the Discord to vote on last week's uh, snafu debacle. And I, I don't think it was a snafu, Bob. I think you just lost. <laughs> I will say this, it it still seems inconclusive to me because, <laughs> because even then they were like, Bob's technically wrong, but also Brad, you screwed him over. So it's like, <laughs> maybe we should just do NFL style records and I could just take a tie on that one. There you go. Yeah. You are three, one and one. Three, one and one. I'm okay with that. Yeah. All right. I'll, I'll give it to you. We'll call that one a tie. <laughs> All right. That sounds good. Let's, let's see if this week's can improve my record though. All right, so today's two facts and a falsehoods. Ooh, bro, that's a that's a ad spot right there. <laughs> today's two spots and a falsehood is brought to you by <laughs> Coors Light. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! All right, so today's two facts and a falsehoods. Fact number one: the word "majestical" was actually used by the bard himself 
in William Shakespeare's Hamlet. Okay. Fact number two. Sam Neill and Julian Dennison actually went camping together with some of the crew for the movie for a whole week in preparation for this movie. Fact number three. The Huia bird, I think I'm pronouncing that right, that that Ricky and Heck spot in the middle of the movie, is actually a real species of New Zealand wattle bird that has not been seen since 1907. I'm stumped. I have, I have no idea. Um, <laughs> remind me what, what fact number one was again? The word majestical, oh, majestical. which, you know, Ricky says yeah, yeah, is yeah. not a real word, was used by the bard himself. Every time I hear that word, I think of uh, that movie Cats that we watched, and magical <laughs> Mr. Mistopheles, and I, I, yeah. I don't know, man. Did the bard use yeah. that? Yeah, it's just, it's just jellical, man. <laughs> it's freaking jellical. Um... <laughs> Number two could be a falsehood, but it sounds too innocuous. So I'm going to say that's true. Number one or number three. I think I'm going to get it wrong no matter what I do. So I'm going to say that number three is the falsehood. That the Huia bird was was actually an extinct New Zealand bird. That is actually a fact, Wow, Robert. okay. I'll give you a second chance. Which one do you think? The majestical or that Sam and Julian went camping? Well, and the fact that you're giving me a second chance makes me think that I really whiffed on it. So now I'll just say number. <laughs> I'm just let, I'm just letting you go. Now man. I'll say number two is the falsehood uh, that they went camping. Yeah, that is the falsehood, Robert. Oh, interesting. Okay, cool. Yeah the the word majestical is in scene one, act one of Hamlet. Wow, right right off the bat, right off at the, the bat, Globe man. Theater, you get hit with majestical. <laughs> That's All right, right. Cool. Man. All right. So I legitimately lost this week. I am three, two, and one. Brad, you are, uh, you're really starting to get me with these two facts and a falsehoods. Making a comeback. <laughs> yeah. All right, man. So let's talk a little bit about Taika Waititi, the filmmaker. Okay. So this, uh, this was an adaptation of a novel, but I think it very clearly has all of his kind of creative juices infused into it. Like this, this very much screams Thor Ragnarok. It very much screams Jojo Rabbit. One of the things I kind of want to talk to you about, Brad, is that in 2016, I think this style of comedy had not been brought over into the MCU yet. And and it it has so infected the MCU now that I kind of go back and I watch this and I'm like, oh, like these are the same kind of jokes they do in like, you know, the latest Captain America movie now. And I'm not I'm not suggesting that like the MCU has ruined comedy for me, but I do think that like the novelty of Taika Waititi's style of comedy has kind of worn off for me a little bit. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like I've seen this movie or this style of comedy 50 times in the last five years. Yep. And I'm wondering, like, if it's affecting my ability to critically evaluate this movie fairly. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I'll say this. So I fell off the MCU train around it was i think i watched captain america the winter soldier mm -hmm. and then i like nothing about that movie was bad i remember walking out of the theater and being like man that was like one of the best ones yet and then i just didn't go to the next one <laughs> and then didn't go to the one after that and just lost all interest and a few years later i was at my brother-in-law's bachelor party and the next morning we threw on thor ragnarok while we were kind of getting ready 
And I remember watching it and thinking to myself, oh, the the MCU has given up on itself. Like it's self-aware, it's making fun of itself. It realizes that it's kind of ground to a halt with its current style of movie making. And this is like signaling the end of the MCU. <laughs> Like, like that was my take. Yikes. After watching Thor Ragnarok. <laughs> and I think it's because self-aware humor for me, it just kind of always has a cap on how funny it can be. Hmm. Like, usually if you throw one or two somewhat self-aware jokes into a movie, I don't mind it. It, it can be amusing. But it feels like Tycho's style often revolves fully around that style of comedy. And he does it better than most other people. I'll fully admit that. It's genuinely witty and amusing and, and like draws a lot of chuckles from me. It just never will, I don't know, it, it, it'll never hit the peaks of comedy for me. I, I think I might have said that earlier. So I'm not, I'm not sure what to do with it either, man. Like, it's funny. This movie is, is genuinely entertaining. Yeah. But it doesn't quite always hit the punches for me. Like, uh, a few examples would be, the uh, the dude who takes a selfie with him, right? He he finds this random girl on a horse. She takes him to her house, and her dad is a twenty four year old bro that like takes selfies with him and then walks back in, assumably to smoke weed. And he takes about seventeen pictures with him. Well, the other example for me is the the CPS agent that keeps following them. Like the first time she talks about him causing vandalism and kicking things and throwing things and like was hilarious, super mm -hmm. funny. Yeah. But then she repeats it like three times in the movie and right. it just it gets old after a while. So I don't know, man, but where are you at with the comedy in this film? I really I mean, I still thought it was really funny. And I think the fact that it is at its heart such an earnest, charming movie really helps that a lot. It deals with heavy themes, but it never descends into being a heavy movie. And I think because of that, like, even if the jokes are never laugh out loud funny for me, it's always amusing. And so I think that it, this movie has that going for it in spades. But it also is kind of just a much smaller, more intimate movie that has very low stakes, like, you know, comparatively to other things Taika Waititi has done. And like when you hold this up next to Jojo Rabbit, like it it might be an unfair comparison. And I know some people didn't like Jojo Rabbit, but I really liked it a lot. And that movie is just so much more cinematic than this movie is. Like it obviously had a much bigger budget and it dealt with even deeper themes than this one did. And and so you like you go back to this one and it's like, oh, that was a cute movie, you know, but like. I'm having trouble I guess, contextualizing this movie. Do you know what I mean? Like when I yeah. first saw it, it was my number one movie for the year 2016, Brad. Like I loved this movie and I go back and watch it now and I'm like, oh, that was really cute. And it still holds up yeah. pretty well, but it's also like kind of a trifle and, and that's okay. It's enjoyable as hell, but like, is it anything more than that? You know? Yeah. Honestly, I think we had the same problem with up in the air a few weeks ago like it was one of the best movies of 2009 i remember watching it probably a year or two after it came out and being like oh my gosh this is one of my favorite movies and yet watching it a second time a third time i'm like oh you know this is like a really solid movie 
And I, I think if I watched this again, I'd probably be in a similar place where, well, I don't know, man, because <laughs> the first time watching this here, I'm like, oh, this is a really cute, fun movie. So I don't, I don't know if I was quite as high as you were on yeah. it. Yeah. But I guess I'll say this, man. Movies aren't necessarily in their original form meant to be rewatched, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like way back in the day, you were meant to go see the movie in theaters and maybe go back and see it a second or third time. And then that was it. Like, if you didn't see Wizard of Oz in 1939, chances are you didn't see it for 10 to 15 years until, you know, maybe it played on TV at some point. And so I I think there is a reality where it's okay to recognize that a movie you just adored on first viewing, it's okay to come back to it and say, you know what, maybe it's not a nine, nine and a half out of 10, maybe it's a eight out of 10, but I still enjoy it and have fun with it. Yeah. So, okay, let's give final scores then, because I think I am going to come out to an eight and a half out of 10 on this movie. It's really good. And I would highly recommend that everyone that's listening watch this movie if they haven't. It doesn't have to be a 10 out of 10 transcendently amazing movie to be a good time at the movies. Like I would kind of put this in the same category as Chef, which I picked earlier in the season. Super good, life affirming, funny at parts, moving at parts. It's a good movie and it's worth watching. But like, you know, not every movie has to be an Oscar winner and that is totally okay. And it's a really, really good eight and a half. Yeah, I'm with you, man. I I think that this, this really, this and Chef are like two perfect examples of why we are doing this season. Like, like this season is all about just having fun with these are the movies that I just really, really enjoy. And they don't have to be perfect. They don't have to be, you know, grand slams every time. But I'm with you, dude. I I think I'm going to give it an eight out of ten. Uh, th- there were certain parts of the movie that just didn't work for me. Uh, one of which being the third, what I would call the third primary actor of the movie, uh, the CPS agent. She never really worked for me. Like as soon as you realize that she was just taking herself way too seriously, I was like, oh no, she's no good. Not not a fan. Mm-hmm. I will say most touching moment of the movie for me. And like, I think it, it illustrates perfectly what Tycho was trying to go for with this movie is when he's trying to warm up his hot pack over the fire. (laughs) Because that's like the last thing that really reminds him (laughs) of his foster mom. It's a great little visual gag, yeah. Oh, it's touching. It's it's genuinely sad. It makes you chuckle. Like, I think that little 10-second scene is like everything this movie stands for. So, like, I'm all about it, man. This is a phenomenal movie that people need to get behind. And I I honestly have spent the last few days talking to people and been like, hey, have you ever heard of Hunt for the Wilder People? And everybody is like, no. Uh, I did find one person at a coffee shop in town that I I was, like, casually mentioning it to a friend of mine. And from behind the counter, the girl working there was like, Hunt for the Wilder People. I just watched it a month ago and it's the best movie ever. It's a real crowd pleaser. Yeah, it's so much fun, dude. All right, so we are coming out to an 8.25 out of 10, but we'd like to know what you think. Have you seen Hunt for the Wilder People? If not, we would like you to go see it and then come back and tell us what you think. You can find us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Film Whiskey. 
And once you've watched the film and posted about it on Instagram, because nobody uses Facebook or Twitter, <laughs> uh, you can join our Discord and talk to us about the movie. We are on here every single day talking to you, the listeners of the Film and Whiskey podcast. So you can find a link to our Discord at the end of every single one of our show notes. We are going to change it up a little. We've been picking random movies all season, but we're going to get off of our mostly random rhythm here. <laughs> Because we're going into the season of Passover and Easter, and one of Brad's four remaining movies, somehow, is The Prince of Egypt. So we're like, well, it wouldn't make any sense to do this later in the season. So we're going to no. watch DreamWorks' 1998 animated masterpiece, The Prince of Egypt. Deliver us. <laughs> Deliver us from the takes that we will have on that film. We will see you next week for that one. But until then, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we'll see you next time.